Hi, this is Patrick Baird, co-host of Unknown Orbits Podcast. I'm here to tell you about my latest novel, The Nowhere Navy, a military science fiction novel set in the distant future. It's basically McHale's Navy in space. It's on Amazon.com. I hope you'll enjoy it. Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 40 of Unknown Orbits, Costigan's Needle by Jerry Soule. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Costigan's Needle is a novel that tells the story of a strange device that leads to unexpected consequences. In the story, the Inland Corporation, a manufacturing firm of high-tech equipment, high-tech for the 1950s, funds a scientist's research who has created a device, Costigan's Needle. Costigan is the name of the scientist. That opens a doorway to an unknown world where only living matter may pass into. The initial device is only a few feet high, and it's got an opening big enough for a human to stick their arm into. So when the scientists and the investors and the company stick their arm in, they can feel water, they can feel air, and their hand and arm disappears off into some other place. But that's as much as they know. So they fund the project to build a full-size version of it, which is several stories high, and it's big enough for a person to walk into the base of it. Of course, that's what eventually they wound up doing. They draw lots, and one of the scientists, uh, engineers, winds up walking in. His clothes fall to the ground, and he disappears and does not return. For many days, they're waiting for him to return. They keep the machine running, hoping that he will find his way back to the opening, but he never does. Eventually, a group of religious fanatics come in and try to protest, saying that they're perverting God's will. The police become involved, and one by one, several police officers wind up disappearing into the machine as well, at which point they decide to hold off on any further experiments. But unfortunately, one of these religious fanatics breaks into the building and throws a crowbar into the electronic equipment, which causes Costigan's needle to send out a surge that transports every living person and thing within two blocks of the factory to this unknown world. All of the scientists, all of the police, all the religious fanatics, and all the neighbors from the local neighborhood suddenly find themselves naked, floating in a lake. They have to swim to shore to save themselves. Some of them don't make it, some drown, but the majority of them do make it to shore. And when they come ashore, they find out that they're in a primitive landscape, probably thousands of years before the 1950s. Or 
an alternate Earth. Yeah, they're not sure at first whether it's an alternate Earth or they've gone back in time. Of course, there's really no way to tell because they're all naked. They come in there naked. They have not even a simple tool with them. For me, one of the worst parts of the story is that includes fillings in their teeth. Oh, yeah, that's right. The fillings are not transported because only organic matter can be transported. So there they are in this wild, undeveloped land, and they break off into two groups. The religious fanatics go off on their own, and everyone else rallies around the scientists and the engineers because they're the smart people. And they begin slowly building their own little society back up, starting with the very fundamentals of food and shelter. And then, and this is the part of the novel that I found highly incredulous. They start building steel and electricity and all kinds of highly advanced technology. The author does a pretty good job of explaining how they have all these different primitive techniques for making various components and finding the materials. So it's not like he just waves his hand and says, and 10 years later, he goes into some detail on how they get from point A to point B. But I'm just not buying the idea that you could go from the Stone Age to the Rocket Age in 10 years, even with all of the knowledge that these scientists and engineers possess. That's my major quibble with the story. I forgive it. I'll agree that the time scale would be a quibble, but I'm fine with what he did with that. Okay. So to wrap it up, they build this new Costigan's Needle. One of them, well, the main character goes through, and by the way, this is all set in Chicago. The Inland Corporation and Costigan's Needle is all in Chicago. They're expecting to go through and hopefully be back in present-day Chicago. So he walks through, and he discovers that it's even worse. It's just a completely desolate landscape with no vegetation, just barren. He returns back, but he doesn't immediately tell everybody that their chances of getting back are completely gone. Another person goes through, and that person comes back and reports that he found himself in present-day Chicago, that it works and it takes you back to present-day Chicago. That he lies. But he lies. The main character knows he's lying, but he doesn't confront him right away. And it turns out to be, according to the story logic, a brilliant idea because everybody in this camp decides that they don't want to go back because they built a really nice life for them and they're very happy with their life, including the main character. So nobody decides to go back, so nobody has to know that the whole thing was a lie. And then the story ends with a naked person walking up out of the lake saying, hey, I've been looking for you. The implication is that they've rebuilt the Costigan's Needle on the other side. Yeah, yeah. Uh, out somewhere over the lake. So that's the story of Costigan's Needle. Personally, I found it to be competently written. It's not a great work of writing. It's an enjoyable read. It's enjoyable. It's, you know, the sort of that cozy fantasy of going back and starting the world over again from scratch. And they certainly had a very cozy existence there. I thought that there were certain scientific aspects of it that were fudged pretty badly. Like, for instance, when they built the new Costigan's Needle, in order to try to go back, oh yeah, they just 
reverse the polarity. Doctor Who did it all the time. There are two hallmarks of bad science fiction. Asteroid storms in space and reversing the polarity. And they did one of them. So do you still like the story, even though I might have ruined it for you? I I don't know. You did kind of ruin it. I kind of want to go back and reread to see if maybe somehow you misinterpreted something. I'm pretty sure I didn't. There was a very clear scene, and I just read it like a week ago. I'm going to have to mention something about Tunnel in the Sky later, because they're similar. Okay, so Jerry's soul was not a tremendously prolific science fiction writer. As a matter of fact, he largely stopped writing science fiction uh, for magazines and novels uh, in 1960. However, he was relatively prolific as a adapter for television and movies, writing scripts for television and movies. He co-wrote three episodes of The Twilight Zone with Charles Beaumont. Charles Beaumont, along with Richard Matheson, was one of the most prolific contributors to The Twilight Zone. The ones that he co-wrote were The New Exhibits, where Wax Museum Comes to Life, The Living Doll, that's the one with Telly Savalas, his daughter has a doll that says, I'm going to kill you. And then Queen of the Nile, which I don't remember, something about a woman using a scarab to steal life force. I I do. And of the three, Living Doll is the best. It's also more iconic. They use scenes from that in commercials for Twilight Zone. I agree with you. I like that one. That's a favorite of mine. Now, the reason that he co-wrote these episodes with Charles Beaumont is that Charles Beaumont was very sick, dying, basically. And he co-wrote it. Did he get primary writing credit or did Beaumont get it? I don't remember. The way I read it is that they initially had co-credits on two of them. One of them was just Beaumont. Mm -hmm. But over time, at least one of them has changed to giving Beaumont sole credit. Either way, it was kind of a nice thing for him to do to help out Beaumont at the end of his life. He died shortly afterwards. Yeah, it was something like an early onset Alzheimer's, but he was quite young for that. I'm not sure if early onset is that early. Yeah, I think he was in his 30s or early 40s when he passed. So Jerry Saul was maybe better known for having written three episodes of Star Trek, the Corbomite Maneuver, that's where... Shatner bluffs an enemy that he has this corbomite in his hull, and if you blow up the Enterprise, it'll destroy everything around it. This side of Paradise, that's the one where there's spore shooting flowers and Spock falls in love. Yeah, all three of his episodes are pretty iconic. And Whom the Gods Destroy, that one I don't remember which one that is. Do you recall which one that is? Yes. The... Story is not that iconic, but it has a scene in it, which everyone remembers. They go to an insane asylum that's been taken over. Oh, that one, yes. Yeah. That one, I like that one because that's the one where Yvonne Craig, who was Batgirl on the Batman TV show and was a tremendously fetching pinup girl, was the green sex slave from... Whatever planet. I don't remember. What was a planet that had the green women? Oh, you know, that was brought up in the modern movies. Yes. I think Kirk had consummated love with the green 
woman from Elderon or wherever it was. Yeah, who was roommates with Ohura. Right, exactly. She's quite terrific in that particular episode. The inmates run the asylum. That is a really good episode, that particular one. I think of the three, that's probably the best one. So he's well known for that. He also... Mentioned that last scene, which... Which last scene? Where the leader of the lunatics have taken over the asylum has learned shape-shifting. And he disguises himself as Kirk. And there's the scene in the transporter room. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, with the two Kirks and Spock with a gun. Right, right, okay. I'd forgotten about that. I was so overwhelmed with my lust for Yvonne Craig that everything else was pushed out of my mind on that episode. So he wrote an episode of The Outer Limits, which is one of their very best. It really is. The Invisible Enemy, that's the one with the sand sharks on Mars, where a spaceship crashes on Mars and there's these shark-like creatures that patrol the sands of Mars and attack and kill the crew. That's definitely one of my favorite episodes. And it was sort of sideways adapted for the new Outer Limits show. Was it? Jerry Soul didn't have anything to do with this, but they took the idea of deadly creatures in sand from Mars, and it was actually from a George R. R. Martin short story called The Sand Kings. Oh, that is, is a that is a good story and a good episode. Yeah. It's one of the best episodes of the new Outer Limits show. It was very effective, again, just like the original one with the sand sharks. He also wrote a couple episodes of the Invaders TV show, which I remember fondly. It was a terrific show about aliens coming to Earth and being imposters of various human beings and positions of power. Our hero of the show was the only one who could tell that they were aliens and nobody would listen to him. So it was one of those sort of paranoid, traveling the world type shows that were prevalent at the time. A bit repetitive. Yeah, but it was head and shoulders above a lot of TV shows of the time. I mean, this is the same time that The Land of the Giants was on TV, which I enjoyed as a 10-year-old kid, but I realized this show was a slightly more adult and intelligent science fiction show than that. Yeah. Was The Fugitive playing at the time? No, it had ended a year or two before. But there were several TV shows that came out post-Fugitive, which, by the way, for all you young kids... The Fugitive TV show was enormously popular, and the final episode where he finally catches the one-armed man that killed his wife was like one of the most watched TV shows ever at the time. Made into a movie like 30 years ago with Tommy Lee Jones and Harrison Ford. Yeah, which was a good movie, but there was a period where they made a bunch of guy-on-the-run shows. So that was his TV work. There's one other writing job that he did that I want to take a little bit of a diversion into, and that was the classic Japanese kaiju movie, Frankenstein Conquers the World. And I'm going to have to give you a little bit of backstory on this one, which I think is interesting. So as we talked about in our last episode, when we were talking about giant monster movies, we talked briefly about Willis O'Brien, who was the original animating genius behind King Kong, who did all these effects for the original King Kong movie, and how he really struggled after that. He really had a hard time getting movies made. So after this period where he only made two movies in 10 years, 
he had an idea for a movie that he wanted to pitch called King Kong versus Frankenstein. And this is where King Kong would have come back. They would have brought him from Skull Island and he would have fought a giant Frankenstein monster. Sort of a far out idea, I know, but he had worked it out to some degree of detail. So he went to Archeo Studios to ask whether he could get permission to use King Kong. And in the process of doing that, he was introduced to a producer at Archeo who kind of took the ball and ran with it. This producer actually wound up going to Japan to Toho Studios, and Toho Studios was interested in the idea. But what wound up happening is Toho was not really interested in making King Kong versus Frankenstein. What they wanted to do is they wanted to get the rights to make a King Kong movie. So they worked out a deal, producer and the the people at Toho, and cut Willis O'Brien completely out of the process. Totally screwed him over. Stole his idea. It was devastating. It was just a very, very sad moment when his last shot at doing something in Hollywood was taken away from him. And of course, what wound up happening is that Toho wound up making King Kong versus Godzilla, which was an enormous success all around the world. And as a follow-up, they took the fragment of this idea of a giant Frankenstein monster, and they hired Jerry Soule to come in and write the script. In Japan, it wound up being called Frankenstein versus Barogon, Barogon being a dinosaur monster. Which, by the way, is how it's described in America. If you go to IMDb, right. you can't find Frankenstein Conquers the World except for references to other shows. Right, right. You That's, have to look it up as Barogon. Yeah. yeah, it's now known in that form. But in, in this movie, which is kind of crazy, at the end of World War II, German scientists smuggled the living heart of Frankenstein Frankenstein's monster, out of Germany and send it to Japan for safekeeping because Germany is about to be conquered. And where do they send it? Why, they send it to Hiroshima, of all places. So, boom, the atom bomb goes off. The lab in Hiroshima is destroyed, but the heart of Frankenstein still lives and begins growing and eventually... So... Do we get a nice scene of the heart in the rubble starting to beat? I believe so, yeah. I want that. Yeah, yeah. A few years later, there's a strange-looking boy running wild in Hiroshima, and people are trying to catch him, but he always gets away. And then he grows to be like man-sized, and some scientists find him, and they figure out who he is, and they're testing him. But he keeps growing and growing until he becomes a giant. And he, he's tormented by his captors and some are Somebody comes in and tortures him or something. Why not? And he breaks free and he's wandering around the countryside. You know, he's a sympathetic monster. He's being mistreated and he's misunderstood. And somehow he winds up fighting Barogon. I don't remember exactly how that works out. So one question. Maybe it's because of the way the monster looks. Is he intellectually normal? No. Okay. He's not intellectually normal. Okay. So... In my opinion, it's one of the better kaiju movies of the 1960s in Japan. I would put it in the top five. Even though it's got kind of a preposterous 
premise to it. Yeah, I'm trying hard not to make fun of it because, as we discussed before, I thought I had seen it, but when I started to do research, I realized I hadn't. Which I think we're going to remedy next time I come down to Milwaukee. We're going to probably wind up watching it. Yeah. So uh, I would recommend it. I would say if you're a kaiju fan and you haven't seen it, I would recommend it. But I would say this kind of caps off Jerry Saul's TV and movie career. Because what he tended to do in most cases is he would come in and write the initial script. And then somebody else would be hired to write the final script. Which means that the producers found his script wanting or that it was too elaborate and would have been too expensive to film. So all of the credits, screen credits that he gets, I don't think there's a single one that you can point to that I know of where he wrote the whole script start to finish. We tend to have this conceit with writers that it is such a special magical skill that if you're a writer, you're going to stay a writer for the rest of your life. But Jerry Soule is an example of someone who decided to go do other things. Yeah, and I think it's a mark of his standing as a relatively minor figure in science fiction that I wasn't able to find much biographical information on him. So I don't know what happened to him after the 1960s, what he did after he stopped writing screenplays. He did write a few more books throughout the 1960s. I don't think any, if few, were science fiction books. So, yeah, for one reason or another, his career just kind of petered out. But, you know, he did create some very memorable stuff in three iconic science fiction TV shows. He created some of the best episodes of those TV shows. He wrote one of the best kaiju movies of the 1960s. He was a competent writer. Let's just say that. Any further thoughts on Costigan's Needle or Jerry Soule? I was struggling with saying why you should read this book. Because, as you said, it's competently written. It is a good time killer. It is a satisfying experience. It's not like seeing Star Wars. It's not a hugely impactful thing. Though, every time I read it, I think three times now, I find myself thinking of the premise days after I've read the book. And maybe... That's one reason to read it, because it does stick with you for a while. It is a nice little bit of fantasy. How would you do if you were dropped in the middle of the woods with nothing but a knife? That's the element that I would recommend to readers, is if you enjoy that sort of cozy, having to build up from the Stone Age idea. To me, that's the most attractive part of the book. And like I said, even though he does fudge the science, he does put some effort into trying to explain how they make steel, how they make all these other different advances. So that part of the book, I think, is it's very enjoyable. To me, that makes it so much better when they explain how could you make something like glass under exactly. that situation. right. There's a similar book, which I mentioned earlier, Robert Heinlein's Juvenile Tunnel in the Sky. The plot of that is where there's a group of students who are training to be survivalists. Or no, they're training to be colonists, which means survivalist. And their final test is to be transported to a relatively safe, empty planet on which they have to survive for 24 or 48 hours or something like that. And something goes wrong, and they all get sent to a different planet. 
they very quickly find out that they're on their own and they have to build up society similar to Costigan's Needle. The difference being that Heinlein wanted interpersonal conflict in it, which I'm not a great fan of. I think it's soap opera-ish. Granted, I'm always the one to go for the problem solving in a story. I know other people like the interpersonal stuff more. Heinlein makes a big deal out of having the big, lazy lout who won't do any work, and then the square-jawed hero getting into an honorable fight with him, in which the brute cheats, but our guy still wins. You know, this is a juvenile, so of course it has to have character-building lessons in it lessons yes you know, have to teach you you know what you need to do to become a man and you know to, be, to become a competent man yes yes which that alone i i'm not going to argue it now but i guarantee you that heinlein on his list of what a competent man should be able to do heinlein did not put anything in there that he didn't already know <laughs> yes yeah all right that's it for episode 40 Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.